My dad was a self-taught woodworker and Finnish carpenter. He got most of his skills working with a building company in Vermont in the late 70s and early 80s, doing a lot of the fine detail work on vacation homes purchased by people from out of state. He was the guy who came through and put in the trim and the crown molding, or installed the chair rail when you wanted a room made fancy. A lot of my childhood was spent living through one renovation project or another, since my parents bought a house that was full of 1970s shag carpet, drop ceilings, and awful paneling. My dad renovated everything himself on weekends and made it beautiful. His real passion, though, was furniture and clock making. I have several pieces he handmade before he passed away, including a desk clock and a matching queen-size canopy bed and dresser set made from cherry wood harvested from an uncle's property. I didn't really understand the cost of nice furniture for many years because my dad either made things himself or my parents bought nice but broken things at yard sales and my dad repaired and restored them. His proudest achievement was building a full-size grandfather clock with movements he ordered all the way from Germany. He had made a smaller and more simply designed grandmother clock previously, but he went all out on this one. I remember him laboring over it for months in our detached garage where he had his workshop space. Part of the clock face included a dial that slowly moved from a sun to a moon as the day progressed, which I found enchanting as a child. It played the Westminster chimes every time it struck the hour. Our house was always filled with chiming, striking clocks to the point that my parents would have to stop them if we had guests staying over because they would wake people up. The clock ran beautifully for a few years. It had to be wound once a week, which was always a Sunday affair. Even when my dad got sick, the clock kept running. But that changed after he passed away. You see, my dad was diagnosed with malignant sarcoma when I was 10, fucking cancer. He lasted for a whole two years after the diagnosis, passing away on the day after Christmas, December 26, 1995. The grandfather clock he built, his magnum opus, was never the same after that. Even though it wasn't very old, after dad died, it refused to run properly. You could clean it and wind it and set the pendulum moving, but it would stop on its own for no apparent reason. Not even taking it to a professional to have it worked over solved the issue. As soon as my mother got the clock back home, it would stop working again. There was no physical reason the clock would stop running. Mechanism, weights, and pendulum were in perfect working order, but it just wouldn't run anymore. It was almost like when my dad's light went out, so did his creations. I don't know if she ever managed to get it working properly again. To the best of my knowledge, it's been mostly silent since his death. As an artist, I absolutely believe we put something of our souls into everything we make. We leave that little piece of ourselves behind whenever we let go of something we create. And after that, it's out of our hands. All I know is that my dad's grandfather clock the product of his many hours of labor and love, felt like it was mourning his passing in its own way. I have conflicted feelings about my dad's death, because losing a parent is always hard. But it was also more than half my life ago, and my relatives are not LGBTQIA friendly or accepting, so I haven't been in contact with them for years. But on the other hand, my dad was the one who gave me my artistic drive, and while losing him was rough, it also gave me the space I needed to become the person I am and to find the wonderful chosen family I have now. And that 
I don't regret in the least. Footsteps creeping along the hall at midnight. Uh -huh. Shadows dancing in the corner of your eye. Voices floating from downstairs after twilight. Big note. Spectres moaning from the attic in reply. Everyone has a spooky story, something they don't discuss. But life is a haunted oratory when you're like us. So sit tight, turn on the light, then curl up with some ghoulish history. Something a little dark and dreary. Serve with a heaping dose of eerie. Raise those Moscow mules and clink them. Hi, I'm Jingle Jamie Markey. <laughs> and I'm, uh, uh... Mary, Mary Michael Tatum. Oh, I'm, and I'm Mary Michael Tatum. <laughs> I'm Mary Fuck Kill Tatum. Mary Fuck Kill. Mary Fuck Kill. Mary Fuck Kill. It sounds like the protagonist of one of the stories we'll be reading today. <laughs> yes, quite. Mary fucking Kill. And this is, is Ghoul Intentions. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's a podcast. But, but it's Christmas. It's a Christmas podcast. Christmas, so, Christmas time uh, is here. Time for excited. joy and time for fear. Fear. Or oh. I was going to say fear because it's the podcast is about ghost stories. I, You know, it's fun. I was going to say it's beer because beer. we drink a lot. <laughs> I don't drink that much beer. I'm more of a... I'm more of a cocktail wine sort of guy, although I'd like yeah, to... Yeah, but cocktail and wine does not rhyme with here. That's true. That's so. true. I'm sure there's a cocktail <laughs> that... <laughs> there's got to be a cocktail that rhymes with with here. Uh, here. Let's see. Veneer? French? No. Veneer, no. <laughs> you can drink veneer. That's not... Veneer, I mean, no. some people in, um, in their last extremities might drink veneer. Um, um, you know what? Send us your recipes <laughs> for cocktails that rhyme with here. <laughs> there we go. This show is slowly just going to morph into a podcast about liquor and food. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And then we'll, we'll just giggle about the word liquor. That's, you know what? Oh my God, that's Spooky. a fucking million dollar idea. Why don't we write a cookbook and but we like we put ghost stories in there? Like, you know what I mean? Like, mm. if 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 the murder mystery cookbook genre can take off like it did twenty years ago and it's still going fucking strong. I mean, little old ladies everywhere. Not just little old ladies, but certainly little old ladies everywhere love the shit out of the murder mystery cooking genre. It's like, <laughs> right. in between making my own homemade bouillabaisse, I'm also solving the murder of the judge next door. Um, like, that shit took off. Why can't we try to make, like, a cooking and ghost storying a thing? I'm thinking we'll just have, like, you know, we'll, we'll put together menus. Like, you know, here's here's a meal for this day of the week because it symbolizes, you know, the wild hunt, da-da-da-da-da. And we'll do, like, a little ghost story about the wild hunt and then include a recipe for, you know, coca or 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 whatever. I just really like saying coca because it's basically French for wine cock. Yeah. I hear that. Which is much more delicious <laughs> than the experience of my 20s would lead me to believe. Yeah. <laughs> I hear that. <laughs> I guess it's better than the American version, which is just whiskey dick. 
That's true. I also I also hear that. Uh, it's what we like to refer to as of today. It's it's Jesus Halloween up in uh it's Jesus. <laughs> Jesus Halloween. It is. I mean, or it's very my, spooky as the my Jesus nephew, story when you think about it. As my nephew said and uh, used to say when he was very little, happy birthday Jesus. Cheez Its. Cheez Its, yeah. Not a sponsor of the show, but it was just really funny. He'd be like, Happy <laughs> birthday, Cheez Its. <laughs> and we'd be like, That's fun. Today, Cheez Its was born in a manger. <laughs> nice. I have a cousin who, when he was young, he would say, Let us thank him for the lettuce in his prayer. <laughs> and it was really cute until he found out it was cute. And then he started doing it on purpose and like looking at us, like, Ah, isn't that cute? And then I'd be like, You're a fucking shit. Stop Give me it. that little. <laughs> Giving you that little vaudeville you know nudge, it. like ah, 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 <laughs> ah, let us thank him for uh, our bread. Tedious. Yeah, <laughs> take yeah, this BLT fun. in remembrance of me. It's fun and cute until oh. they know they're fun and cute, and that's not funny. Yeah, anymore. and then it's just disingenuous, and it's like, mm. ugh, if I wanted that, I'd just watch a movie. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Man, we watch. So the girls are in town. Yay! Again. I'm so I'm so glad Yay. they're there and they're safe and they're with you for the holidays because they have yes, so much we, fun over there. Yeah, well, they do. And uh, you know, there was a there was debate on whether or not to go get them because sure. of, of the coronavirus. Yep. But their mom really needed us to take them. And so and also we really wanna we haven't seen them since the summer. And, you yeah. know, it's more than just, I think, yeah. going as an adult to see family. These are children that haven't seen a significant influence in their life. And so it was yeah. just a decision that we made and everybody was really careful. We all were, you know, did testing and all that kind of stuff. Good. good um good. and so uh, everybody's good, but we've ha- we got them on Sunday. Drove out to pick them up. Talked the entire way back. They told us all of the things. <laughs> Immediately start talking trash about everybody they know that's <laughs> over there. And I love it. I'm like, tell me the tea, girls. And they're like, here it is. <laughs> and they just go. It's pretty great. Uh, and then, um, yeah. So they're, what I have, what I find funny is I decorate everything. So when they come in, it's like, you know, magical. They get that kind of magical Christmas thing. Mm-hmm, so I think it's so mm-hmm. important when you're a kid to have that kind of feeling. Yeah. And so they came in and it was like, ooh, Christmas is everywhere and like the Christmas tree and everything. But I haven't wrapped any presents yet because I haven't had time. Sure. And uh, <laughs> they're very confused about why there's no presents under the tree. And it's like, <laughs> well, I bought them late. Normally, I buy them quite a bit early, but this is a weird year. So they're waiting, and I got to wrap some presents soon. So they're like, oh, How do you do that? Like, how do you wrap presents without alerting, without getting their attention? Because it's, you know, wrapping presents is a noisy business. And, you know, the girls are going to hear. Oh, well, they'll know that I'm wrapping. Because they're, okay, so the way that things are done, I feel like I should look outside the doors. But (laughs) the way that things are done in our family is that um, the presents that Santa delivers are not uh, wrapped. Oh, that's they're right. Right. Like, they're like set up. They're like, like on display. Store. Yeah. Yes, they're a display. Yeah, okay. And then the only presents that are wrapped are the ones that we give them. Mm, so mm, mm. that's how the wrapping works. So I don't have a ton to wrap. Um, I just have to do it. <laughs> we're not really, we're not doing any presents this year. I sent I sent my family, yeah. who we won't be seeing this year, of course, for a variety of reasons, not least of which because COVID and another because we're uh, on the other side of the country now. But um 
but uh, I sent them uh, gift boxes, like a gift. Like my mother and my dad were like like cookies and chocolate. They're very at their age. It's like they've been the hardest to fucking buy for because they're they they just yeah. if they want it they buy it for themselves, you know. So they don't really, yeah. you know. So I'm like ah, so I'll get them. So I'm I'm all about giving people perishables. Yeah, because that's I'm good. like, I even like if you could buy these for yourselves, you can. I can buy them too because you're never going to get sick of eating these. Um, so I bought them like a gift basket with, uh, you know, like a box, or whatever, with like chocolates and like um, wind-scarred pears, whatever the fuck that is. Um, <laughs> Sounds like pears that people just threw. You're like, oh, it's wind now. <laughs> yeah, um, and different stuff, and the same thing with my with my uh, brother and sister in law and the kids. Yeah, um, they were going around last night taking pictures of the Christmas star, which is otherwise known as the Great Conjunction. Um, which yeah, <laughs> right? right, yes, and on um, the winter solstice, how weird! It's kind. It only happens like that's whatever, whatever, eight hundred, nine hundred years or something like that. I, I, I yeah, but on it, the winter solstice, that's even different. Like, yeah, it's really, crazier. it's yeah, it is crazy. But they were. I didn't really know any of this until they started like sending me pictures, and it was just like a picture sent without an explanation to to all of us in this group chat. And I was mm. like, and I thought my sister in law was sending me a picture of a UFO because if you if you um the picture she got if you zoomed into it as much as possible uh it just looked like a big metal pot in the sky and i yeah. was like is that a fucking ufo and she was like no it's the christmas star <laughs> it's the christmas star just in time but being um, <laughs> magic and so i That's, was like oh shit i want to go christmas, see it it's magic yeah and then uh here in la we we couldn't really see the christmas star from our place but we did have a lovely view of a structure fire just a few blocks up the road oh, very Nice. Uh, so. I went outside to look and I was like, okay, there's the moon and that is a plane. Okay, but that one is also a plane. <laughs> and then I was like, these are all planes. I'm a lot of helicopters. A lot of helicopters in our neighborhood last night, which is how we oh, knew yeah. about the fire because they're all getting like apparently some plumbing factory uh, had a fire. I don't think anyone was hurt. I hope they weren't. But it was a pretty magnificent yeah. fire. Like it was, wow. it was, you could see the flames from our balcony and, and the smoke, um, was still in the air four hours later, just hovering above wow. like a, like a cloud line. This time of year. And of course, this is just my opinion. Uh, I always feel like big fires and big accidents like that are, uh, really helpful if you have the right insurance you know what i'm saying <laughs> especially this year right oh my like, god right imagine there's a lot Jesus of Christ. people that have accidents this year and need insurance oh. to pay for their entire business oh my god can you imagine and i don't blame them yeah yeah <laughs> I don't I don't this year's been crazy uh, i can't wait for yeah, this year we, to be over someone uh one of our fans so tweeted close. online about us talking about new year last year and how excited we mm. were and how great 2020 was gonna I be and it's like wah, wah. you know what it was great until liverpool <laughs> which was pretty early in the year um, it was the first weekend in march and then everything went down the shitter after they, that. Beware the Ides of March. So, yeah, we'll see. It's kind of crazy. Things have, we moved to L.A. just in time for there to be a spike in cases. When yeah. when we got here, it was the lowest in the country. And now it's one of the highest, if not the highest. And we're like, okay, cool. Yeah. So I don't make coffee without a fucking mask. Yeah, well, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. we, especially, oh, my God, I'm going to the store right now oh. is just an anxiety I like I come home, I wash, I rinse with lice like Lysol. Mm. I don't rinse with Lysol, but like Listerine, you know, and oh, like yeah. I'm doing yeah. all of the things yeah. oh. to uh, vitamin D, like crazy zinc, all of yeah. you know. But it's just Fortunately there's a grocery store just up the road from us that's kind of like we'll go at certain times of day when there are as few people as possible. 
Um, but we go several times a week because it's just not, you know, it's not feasible to, yeah. you know, we've got to, you know, it's just, it's, it's hard for us to, we're not very good at managing, uh, our, our like grocery list. So it's like, oh fuck, I yeah. need that. So we go to the store like every other day and, um, you know, one of us does. And so it's like, okay, here's your mask, here's your face shield, here are your gloves, mm-hmm. you know, and then they, it's, but at least here there's like a security guard out front that won't let you in if you don't have, you know, That's nice. uh, protective equipment on and stuff like that. And it's, they've got, you know, it's pretty easy to avoid people. At yeah, the store, right. but other than that, we went we to don't... a gas station that was like masks. You have to have a mask, and then I walked in, and people without masks were just walking around. I was like, "That doesn't seem like you mean it." <laughs> it yeah, it seems, seems like, like you just put up that sign just to put up. Well, the sign. and it, the thing too, like, and I just tweeted about this today, but um, my aunt is currently in the hospital. With COVID, Ugh. she's in an ER. Uh, she's not in great shape, Ugh. and it's because so she had a friend come over, who uh, was coughing and sneezing, and she told she was like, "Hey, I think you've got COVID," and her friend was like, "No, no, no, it's just allergies. I just have really bad allergies." And so she stayed for this little visit, just came over, little visit, no mask, and then left. Ugh. And Jesus. turns out she did have COVID, and now my aunt is in the hospital. She's recovering, but my aunt is in the hospital, Ugh. and is very worried that she's not going to make it. Which is terrible. She's by herself. They sent her to one hospital. And on the way to that hospital, she started to get worse. So they said she needed to go to ER. They called the hospital, let them know. The hospital said, we don't have an ER. Because it's this very small town, Oklahoma. So then they had to go to a different hospital that had an ER. So she's at this hospital by herself on Christmas. She's going to be there probably on Christmas. Alone. Just alone. Surrounded by other people. and. The thing that I think by strangers, makes me yeah. the angriest. Yeah, like, and I'm not as mad at this woman, this friend, because they're doing what they've been told. Yeah. They're they just, fucking the they politicians just... in Oklahoma. All of the right-wing politicians have been supporting this weird politis- politicizing of a pandemic. It's so and strange. And you don't have to wear a mask, and it's not that big of a deal, and all of these different things— so she's told by the politicians. She's told by the media. And, you know, and I think people don't understand, too, that for people who aren't online and actively searching <sighs> to find out the truth, they're trusting their local media. And in states like Oklahoma, in smaller states or more rural areas that are controlled by the right side of things, yeah. the media is controlled as well. So basically, the only news they get is the same thing as Fox. So it's not news. What I find propaganda. so— what I find, so she has no way of knowing. And then on top of that, the fucking churches tell oh them they God. should. Oh my God! Yeah, these and it's like I, I mean, you're seeing. I'm seeing ads all over the place for like billboards and whatever churches going like, "Hey, are you sick of the pandemic? Or COVID got you down? Come worship with us." And I was like, "But that's, I mean, you know, I yeah. get it, but that's is going to give more people COVID. I just don't. Yeah. What's weird to me is I don't understand how anybody who's ever seen Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> cannot think that politicians that that are downplaying the severity of the pandemic aren't the equivalent of fucking Professor Umbridge, the, the yeah. most despicable villain, bar none, even Voldemort, uh, in the entire franchise. Like, she's despicable because she does so much damage by being in fearful denial. And it's yeah. weird that, you know, not, not to get political, but of course I am because I'm me. Yeah, that we've always it's, get political. It's, also, we're not. Pre- it is so who we fucking are. weird and inconsistent <laughs> that that the 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 fringe political groups, uh, mostly fucking rich assholes who just like to pretend they give a shit about poor people's rights, um, yeah. so they can continue stealing from them, fucking hand over fist. But like these people, I think are either 
like they will try to they will try to foment so much fear and divisiveness divisiveness over like completely fictional shit like Pizzagate <laughs> and 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 you know uh, all kinds of crazy shit that's just I mean like the QAnon stuff you know that's just not yeah. a thing like oh, this yeah. deep state but when something real is around they're like it's nothing it's a conspiracy it's not it's just bullshit it's it's all fiction I'm like God Jesus Christ Ken if you could just if you, if these people <laughs> could just apply just a fraction of the paranoia they have about every fucking thing else to the actual problem, we might not be in this situation right now, which pisses me off because we have a dear friend of ours now who has, you and me, who has lost three fucking family members to this goddamn yep. disease. And there is no reason we could not have kicked its ass months ago if people would have just hunkered down. You see people in, in uh, Australia out and about doing stuff because they did what they were supposed to do. Yeah. And the, the selfishness, the, the the selfishness that's being perpetuated and, and encouraged by people that are supposed mm-hmm. to be living like Jesus, like, I guess their mentality is it's okay if they die as long as we save them first. So get them in I here. Had, and I just like, don't understand. Just, it makes me so angry at these people. Like, do they want do a bunch of people care. to die off because they're just like, ah, there's too many people? Like, I don't get it. I really don't fucking don't, get it. Yeah. All Are I know taking is it as we a calling? I don't know. We had a it's we had a friend of ours. I'm not going to say who, um, but someone that you know, pretty much the minute we moved to L.A., they reached out to us and were like, hey, um, my birthday's coming up soon and I want to celebrate because mm-hmm. I'm fucking sick of being, you know, I'm sick of everything. I'm sick of all this shit. I'm sick of us being, you know, cooped up and I'm sick of not being able to go anywhere, do anything with friends. And I've had a birthday every year since your birthday party every year. <laughs> of course, they had a birthday every year. I've had a yeah, birthday party every, every year, year since since I was a kid. And and they reached out and I, I just, you know, I love this person dearly. And, and but I just felt like I just I very politely but very curtly said, um, no. And, you know, when when asked to clarify whether or not the person like, oh, was that bad for me to ask? And I'm like, let me explain something to you. Brandon and I uh, have had to postpone our wedding indefinitely because of all this shit. And because of that, my father, whose health has begun to fail and who's never been in good health, it's not COVID related, of course, but he has a lot of health problems and they continue to get worse and worse and worse. And the longer this goes on, the less likely it is that my dad will be able to take part in that wedding. And so I'm like, all because people like you, the said motherfucker, can't not go without a fucking childish sheet cake birthday party one fucking year one fucking year i'm like yeah i get it you're having to sacrifice traditions but we're sacrificing a lot of fucking traditions and i'm like just god damn it like why is it why are some people just fucking unable to cope and be like oh you're right they just can't like people that can't wear masks like what's the big deal what's the big fucking deal like just right. put on a mask like yeah put on a shirt right? i think the one you, thing this you know pandemic has you got to put on shoes what's the big deal you don't feel face. you know whatever it's like but there's some people are like no i don't want it. it's like do they have a phobia of masks is it a thing like is no. that is that i wonder some I, i'm sure some people do but they have a phobia of doing what the other side said is a good idea. Which is because fucking the ridiculous. Other side, and it's this whole mentality of uh, we, we're we the only ones with true morals. We're the only ones who have a true morality about us. Right. So Everyone that, else is going to hell because they're evil. the other side is evil no matter mm-hmm. what. They are bad. And so it doesn't matter if we lie. It doesn't matter if we cheat. It doesn't matter what we do. As long as we keep everybody knowing that this side is bad, we are the moral leader. We are the in the right. And it is... <sighs> absurd because it's encouraged behavior be by people that. who know better that are in power that want to maintain that power by riling up 
people who are trusting them. And it is well because they're not they're not as worried about COVID as everyone else because as we've seen no, when those politicians is, they they get the fucking cocktail that's not available yeah. to anyone else and so they're fine for them it's just it is just yeah. like the flu. Oh, fuck Ugh. it. But anyway, anyway, so sorry. Any, I just wanted any to like positive energy for my aunt and my mom who's please. very yes, yes, very yes. And those of you who are about to celebrate the holidays, please, mm. please, please, even if it. I mean, it's some for some people. It's costing you. The good graces of your family because they just feel like you're selfish or stupid because you want to be safe or you're being called paranoid or belittled when in fact you're just trying to show that you care about them enough that you don't want to put them in jeopardy or risk it, you know, and I'm, I'm sorry if anyone's going through that, but please stick to your guns. Please continue to be safe and don't get in, don't go to large don't go to gatherings fucking period yeah um don't go yeah, out unless you absolutely have with... to unless it's out in some open area like a park where you're not near anybody you know like just i know it's fucking hard right now it's hard for us too but it's like we gotta we gotta at some point the lessons we're gonna learn from this are just gonna get harder and harder and harder and harder until every fucking one of us figures out what it is we have to do and a lot of us have, and we're just staying the course, waiting for everyone else to fucking figure out this is not going to go anywhere until you do the hard thing. Uh, I just want to add two things. One, um, you know, like one of the things with the girls is we know it's our responsibility not to go anywhere or put anybody else's lives at risk. So mm-hmm. I will not be seeing my mother and my brother for Christmas. We're going to Zoom so that they are not put at risk by being around the girls depending upon where they've been. Right. So – you know, that that's the responsibility there that you have to really, you know, it's not easy. It's not easy. And for those people who are celebrating Christmas this year or the holidays, whatever holiday you celebrate, without someone because you've lost them to this mm. pandemic, our hearts are with you. And uh, just know that that you know our hearts are with you i don't i don't have anything no i wish i wish words could even approach stronger or (laughs) better to say but 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 um we love you and we're grateful for you you, and we hope that you stick around um that's right you know and god what a very what a very different introduction to this (laughs) (laughs) now let's talk about something less creepy ghosts um, Yay. <laughs> uh, so what's so it's, it's, what, it's Jesus Halloween. It's, um, <laughs> I love what you call it Jesus Halloween. Um, which is what we're going to call the title because we sort of forgot to. <laughs> <the title. laughs> Jesus Halloween. Oh, we're going to get angry letters. That's fine. Um, That's fine. Uh, tell me I'm wrong. You're not, Give me an I, angry, I, I know, angry letter I, and tell me I'm wrong. I know better. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> ding, ding. Generally, people who tell me I'm wrong when they're not wrong, when they're not right, uh, get a as very uh, simple go fuck yourself. That's gen- that's my that's my go to for right. that critic quote enough. criticism. Um, okay. <laughs> so-, so today, what what we're doing today yeah. is is kind of what we try to do every Christmas because it's uh you know it's it's a tradition, especially in England, uh, that Christmas more so than Halloween, uh, which is is just not as big a thing over there uh, for this sort of thing. But Christmas is the time to tell spooky ghost stories, which is why as revolutionary as uh, an idea as A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens may have seemed, it was actually part of a long-standing tradition of like, no, Christmas is a time to tell ghost stories. Now, why is that? It's because... Um, more so even than Samhain, which was the, the ancient variant on on what we now call All Hallows' Eve or Halloween, like, uh, 
Christmas, which, you know, the winter solstice, and they're, they're not exact analogs, but this time of year is is the time of the winter solstice, which is very much a liminal time. It's a, a limbo time, a, a space between extremes. And so it's only natural around this time of year to think about, you know, the veil between this world and the next being maybe just a little thinner. Because, you know, look, you look outside your window and the trees have all given up their leaves and are dead. And the, the, the landscape just kind of becomes sort of ghostly and otherworldly. And so, you know, and, and you know, fire the fires are lit and people get together and tell ghost stories over, you know, it's people used to entertain each other with ghost stories after dinner. Uh, the way we will sit down and scroll through Netflix. <laughs> yeah, and the way I miss, Michael and I entertain yeah, each other with all the time. After dinner. And Christmas just <laughs> became the time. Like if you if you were invited to a Christmas party in England um, for hundreds of years, if you were invited to a Christmas party in England, you had you better come equipped with a story. That was the price of entry, um, because everyone would take turns telling a story. And some of the best ghost stories, fictional or otherwise, that we know come from a Christmas setting where they were first conceived of at a Christmas party or Christmas gathering. And so we are going today read two stories by one of our favorite authors, uh, yes. Sir Algernon Blackwood, who we have, we yes, have, quite. we've Ooh. read a couple of stories <laughs> by. And uh, let me, t- uh, shall I tell our listeners a little bit about Mr. Blackwood? Please do. So, um, he was it was really cool about this guy is that we I didn't really know this about him until I've been reading his stories for years, but I never really looked much up about his life. But he was a broadcast narrator as well. Like he was a radio, basically a radio host um, for years because yeah. he had this great voice, um, uh, which you can look up uh, samples of. And it's really, oh, God, I just, I, oh, cool. yeah. And um, so, you know, we kind of share that in common with him. You know, we host a podcast, yeah. a, pod, a podcast. We host a podcast. <laughs> we host a podcast. <laughs> And uh, and he, you know, and, and of course we're voice actors and he was uh, much the same. So he was born in 1869 and he was a journalist and broadcast narrator for many, many, many years. But he was also one of, if not the most prolific ghost story writer in the history of the fucking genre. Which is saying something, because especially in the late Victorian era was the was an explosion of, of the ghost story genre. So you had a lot of writers that were just turning out reams and reams and reams of some of the best, most memorable ghost stories ever. And yet he still was able to stand out amid that watershed period right. of the yeah, ghost this time story. Yeah, period, too, was the real explosion of mm-hmm. the, um, the sensitive, the, the psychics, the, oh... Oh, the, 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 the spiritualist movement. The spiritualist yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. There was, really a, there was a lot of there was a there was a confluence of a lot of spooky things going on at the time to make people. And uh, we'll get to this famous quote of Blackwood's that he sums up why he wrote or what he was trying to achieve with his with his paranormal fiction. But his short story collect his uh, short story collection uh, called Incredible Adventures, which was per, uh, published in 1914. Um, is I think is one of the first collections to be categorized as quote weird fiction, which is what we know of. Uh, is what we think of like Lovecraft and and others uh, of that era, who wrote just kind of weird, kind of cosmic horror stories. Um, but most, in fact, most of Algernon's stories belong to the gothic genre, where there are kind of elements of romance mixed in with the horror. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And they typically, uh, which I think you'll you'll hear today, I hope, when we, if we do them justice, Blackwood stories uh, induce a sense of awe rather than just straight up horror, though there's plenty of that mixed in. As quoted in Peter Penzolt's The Supernatural in Fiction, which was published in 1952, Blackwood sums up his writing this way. And I'm going to try to do my best impression of what I... 
That sounded just like him. <laughs> <laughs> That's the British upper crust club cough, um, which sounds like a new version of COVID. Oh, no. Um, my fundamental interest, I suppose, is signs and proofs of other powers that lie hidden in us all. The extension, in other words, of human faculty. So many of my stories, therefore, deal with the extension of consciousness, speculative and imaginative treatment of possibilities outside our normal range of consciousness. Also, all that happens in our universe is natural, under law, but an extension of our so limited normal consciousness can reveal new, extraordinary powers, etc. And the word supernatural seems to be the best word for treating these in fiction. I believe it possible for our consciousness to change and grow, and that with this change we may become aware of a new universe. Gothic and horror fans alike will uh, want to read the oh, so the Willows. Yay! His story, The Willows, is uh, it, oh, uh, has the distinction of being one of H.P. Lovecraft's most beloved short stories. Like H.P. Lovecraft mm. loved that story. Um, he also wrote a short story called The Windigo, which was one of the first mm. uh, examples of Western fiction or of uh, European fiction, rather, to to be based on um, Native American or Algonquin, uh, Algonquin, excuse me, folk myth. And it was actually written after Blackwood returned from a remote hunting trip in Canada. So uh, if you've never read any of Algernon Blackwood, you have so much to choose from. But today we're going to read. What are we reading? Do you, am I going first or are you going first, my well, dear? Well, you just read all of that so I can go first. I feel I feel that, that seems. Want. Yeah, you go first. So um, I am reading The Woman's Ghost Story. Yes. Which is really fun. It, it uh. It is a woman, it's someone telling the story about hearing a woman telling a ghost story, kind of. So it's got layers to it. Um, But what I think is great about some of his writing is it really, it can sound definitely like it's time. But also (laughs) it is very current at the same time. It's just wordy, right? It's current but wordy. There's not emojis explaining it. They're words. But it still is very applicable to today. And so that is going to be my approach is more of a modern reading. Oh, I love it. it. I love it. So here we go. Perfect. Yes. Yes. The woman's ghost story. Yes, she said from her seat in the dark corner. I'll tell you an experience if you care to listen. And what's more, I'll tell it briefly without trimmings. I mean, without unessentials. That's a thing storytellers never do, you know. She laughed. They drag in all the unessentials and leave their listeners to disentangle. But I'll give you just essentials, and you can make of it what you please, but on one condition. That at the end, you ask no questions, because I can't explain it, and I have no wish to. I love it already. (laughs) Sorry, I'm treating this like a a listener submission, and so I'm going to offer a running commentary when I'm inspired. That's all right. (laughs) Let's let's do it. (laughs) We agreed. We were all serious. After listening to a dozen prolix stories from people who merely wished to talk but had nothing to tell, we wanted essentials. In those days, she began, feeling from the quality of our silence that we were with her. In those days, I was interested in psychic things and had arranged to sit up alone in a haunted house in the middle of London. It was a cheap and dingy lodging house in a mean street, unfurnished. I had already made a preliminary examination in daylight that afternoon, and the keys from the caretaker, who lived next door, were in my pocket. The story was a good one. 
satisfied me at any rate, that it was worth investigating, and I won't weary you with details as to the woman's murder and the all-tiresome elaboration as to why the place was alive. Enough that it was. <laughs> Sorry, I love I love the shit out of this. <laughs> I was a good deal bored, therefore, to see a man, whom I took to be the talkative old caretaker, waiting for me on the steps when I went in at 11 p.m., for I had sufficiently explained that I wished to be there alone for the night. I wish to show you the room, he mumbled, and of course I couldn't exactly refuse, having tipped him for the temporary loan of a chair and table. Come in then, let's be quick, I said. We went in, he shuffling after me through the unlightened hall up to the first floor where the murder had taken place. And I prepared myself to hear his inevitable account before turning him out with the half crown his persistence had earned. After lighting the gas, I sat down in the armchair he had provided, a faded brown plush armchair, and turned for the first time to face him and get through with the performance as quickly as possible. And it was in that instant I got my first shock. The man was not the caretaker. It was not the old fool Carrie I had interviewed earlier in the day and made my plans with. My heart gave a horrid jump. Now who are you, pray? I said. You're not Carrie, the man I arranged this afternoon. Who are you? I felt uncomfortable, as you may imagine. I was a psychical researcher and a young woman of new tendencies and proud of my liberty, but I did not care to find myself in an empty house with a stranger. Something of my confidence left me. Confidence with a woman, you know, is all humbug after a certain point. Or perhaps you don't know, for most of you are men, but anyhow, my pluck ebbed in a quick rush and I felt afraid. <laughs> just love that. Very relatable. Oh, you guys don't know what I'm talking about. Sorry, let me let me simplify. <laughs> Who are you? I repeated quickly and nervously. The fellow was a well-dressed, youngish, and good-looking, but with a face of great sadness. I myself was barely 30. I am giving you essentials, or I would not mention it. Out of quite ordinary things comes this story. I think that's why it has value. No, he said. I'm the man who was frightened to death. His voice and his words ran through me like a knife, and I felt ready to drop. In my pocket was the book I had bought to make notes in. I felt the pencil sticking in the socket. I felt, too, the extra warm things I had put on to sit up in, as no better sofa was available. A hundred things dashed through my mind, foolishly and without sequence or meaning, as the way is when one is really frightened. Unessentials leapt up and puzzled me, and I thought of what the papers might say if it came out, and what my smart brother-in-law would think, and whether it would be told that I had cigarettes in my pocket and was a free thinker. The man who was frightened to death, I repeated aghast. That's me, he said stupidly. I stared at him just as you would have done, as any of you men now listening to me, and felt my life ebbing and flowing like a sort of hot fluid. You needn't laugh. That's how I felt. Small things, you know, touch the mind with great earnestness when terror is there. Real terror. But I might have been at a middle-class tea party for all the ideas I had. They were so ordinary. But I thought you were the caretaker I tipped this afternoon to let me sleep here, I gasped. Did, did Carrie send you to meet me? No, 
he replied in a voice that touched my boots somehow. I am the man who was frightened to death. And what is more, I am frightened now. So am I, I managed to utter, speaking instinctively. I'm simply terrified. Yes, he replied in that same odd voice that seemed to sound within me. But you are still in the flesh, and I am not. I felt the need for vigorous self-assertion. I stood up in that empty, unfurnished room, digging the nails into my palms and clenching my teeth. I was determined to assert my individuality and my courage as a new woman and as a free soul. You mean to say you are not in the flesh, I gasped. What in the world are you talking about? The silence of the night swallowed up my voice. For the first time, I realized that darkness was over the city, that dust lay upon the stairs, that the floor above was untenanted and the floor below empty. I was alone in an unoccupied home and haunted house, unprotected, and a woman. I chilled. I heard the wind round the house and knew the stars were hidden. My thoughts rushed to policemen and omnibuses and everything that was useful and comforting. I suddenly realized what a fool I was to come to such a house alone. I was icily afraid. I thought the end of my life had come. I was an utter fool to go in for psychical research when I had not the necessary nerve. Good God, I gasped. If you're not Carrie, the man I arranged with, who are you? I was really stiff with terror. The man moved slowly towards me across the empty room. I held up my arm to stop him, getting up out of my chair at the same moment, and he came to halt just opposite to me, a smile on his worn, sad face. I told you who I am, he repeated quietly with a sigh, looking at me with the saddest eyes I have ever seen. And I am frightened still. By this time, I was convinced that I was entertaining either a rogue or a madman, and I cursed my stupidity in bringing the man in without having seen his face. My mind was quickly made up, and I knew what to do. Ghosts and psychic phenomena flew to the winds. If I angered the creature, my life might pay the price. I must humor him till I got to the door, and then race for the street. I stood bolt upright and faced him. We are about of, of a height, and I was a strong athletic woman who played hockey in winter and climbed Alps in summer. My hand itched for a stick, but I had none. Now, of course, I remember, I said with sort of a stiff smile that was very hard to force. Now I remember your case and the wonderful way you behaved. The man stared at me stupidly turning his head to watch me as I backed more and more quickly to the door. But when his face broke into a smile, I could control myself no longer. I reached for the door in a run and shot out on the landing. Like a fool, I turned the wrong way and stumbled over the stairs leading to the next story. But it was too late to change. The man was after me, I was sure, though no sound of footsteps came, and I dashed up the next flight, tearing my skirt and banging my ribs in the darkness, and rushed headlong into the first room I came to. Luckily, the door stood ajar, and still more fortunate, there was a key in the lock. In a second, I had slammed the door, flung my whole weight against it, and turned the key. I was safe. 
but my heart was beating like a drum. A second later, it seemed to stop altogether, for I saw that there was someone else in the room besides myself. A man's figure stood between me and the windows, where the street lamps gave just enough light to outline his shape against the glass. I'm a plucky woman, you know, for even then I didn't give up hope, but I may tell you that I have never felt so vilely frightened in all my born days. I had locked myself in with him. Oh! The man leaned against the window, watching me where I lay in a collapsed heap upon the floor. So there were two men in the house with me, I reflected. Perhaps other rooms were occupied too. What could it all mean? But as I stared, something changed in the room, or in me, hard to say which, and I realized my mistake. So that my fear, which had so far been physical, at once altered its character and became psychical. I became afraid in my soul instead of in my heart, and I knew immediately who this man was. H how in the world did you get up here? I stammered to him across the empty room, amazement momentarily stimming my fear. Now let me tell you, he began, in that odd faraway voice of his that went down my spine like a knife. I'm in different space, for one thing, and you'd find me in any room you went into. For according to your way of measuring, I'm all over the house. Oh. Space is a bodily condition, but I am out of the body, and I'm not affected by space. It's my condition that keeps me here. I want something to change my condition for me, for then I could get away. What I want is sympathy. Or really, more than sympathy, I want affection. I want love. Aww. While he was speaking, I gathered myself slowly up to my feet. I wanted to scream and cry and laugh all at once, but I only succeeded in sighing, for my emotion was exhausted and a numbness was coming over me. I felt for the matches in my pocket and made a movement toward the gas jet. I should be much happier if you did not light the gas, he said at once, for the vibrations of your light hurt me a good deal. You need not be afraid that I shall injure you. I can't touch your body to begin with, for there's a great gulf fixed, you know, and really this half-light suits me best. Now let me continue what I was trying to say before. You know, so many people have come to this house to see me, and most of them have seen me, and one and all have been terrified. If only, if only someone would not be terrified, but kind and loving to me, then you see, I might be able to change my condition and get away. His voice was so sad that I felt tears start somewhere at the back of my eyes. But fear kept all else in check, and I stood shaking and cold as I listened to him. Who are you then? Of course, Carrie didn't send you, I know now, I managed to utter. My thoughts scattered dreadfully, and I could think of nothing to say. I was afraid of a stroke. I know nothing about Carrie or who he is, continued the man quietly. And the name, my body, I have forgotten. Thank God. But I am the man who was frightened to death in this house ten years ago. And I have been frightened ever since. And I am frightened still. 
for the succession of cruel and curious people who come to this house to see the ghost and thus keep me alive it's in its atmosphere of terror only helps to render my condition worse. If only someone would be kind to me, laugh, speak gently and rationally with me, cry if they like, pity, comfort, soothe me, anything but come in here curiosity and tremble as you are now doing in that corner. Now, madam, won't you take pity on me? His voice rose to a dread, dreadful cry. Won't you step out into the middle of the room and try to love me a little? A horrible laughter came gurgling up in my throat as I heard him, but the sense of pity was stronger than the laughter, and I found myself actually leaving the support of the wall and approaching the center of the floor. By God, he cried, at once straightening up against the window. You have done a kind act. That's the first attempt at sympathy that has been shown to me since I died, and I feel better already. In life, you know, I was a misanthrope. Everything went wrong with me, and I came to hate my fellow men so much that I couldn't bear to even see them. Of course, like begets like, and this hate was returned. Finally, I suffered from horrible delusions, and my room became haunted with demons that laughed and grimaced, and one night I ran into a whole cluster of them near the bed, and the fright stopped my heart and killed me. It's hate and remorse as much as terror that clogs me so thickly and keeps me here. If only someone could feel pity and sympathy and perhaps a little love for me. I could get away and be happy. When you came this afternoon to see over the house, I watched you, and a little hope came to me for the first time. I saw you had courage, originality, resource, love. If only I could touch your heart without frightening you, I knew I could perhaps tap that love you have stored up in your being there, and thus borrow the wings for my escape. Now, I must confess, my heart began to ache a little as fear left me and the man's words sank their sad meaning into me. Still, this whole affair was so incredible and so touched with unholy quality, and the story of a woman's murder I had come to investigate had so obviously nothing to do with this thing that I felt myself in a kind of wild dream that seemed likely to stop at any moment and leave me somewhere in bed after a nightmare. Moreover, his words possessed me to such an extent that I found it impossible to reflect upon anything else at all, or to consider adequately any ways or means of action or escape. I moved a little nearer to him in the gloom, horribly frightened, of course, but with the beginnings of a strange determination in my heart. You women, he continued, his voice plainly thrilling at my approach, you wonderful women, to whom life often brings no opportunity of spending your great love. Oh, if you could only know how many of us simply yearn for it. It would save our souls if but you knew. Few might find the chance that you now have, but if you only spent your love freely, without definite object, just letting it flow openly for all who need, you would re reach hundreds and thousands of souls like me and release us. Oh, madam, 
I ask you again to feel with me, to be kind and gentle, and if you can, to love me a little. My heart did a leap within me, and this time the tears did come, for I could not restrain them. I laughed too, for the way he called me Madam sounded so odd, here in this empty room at midnight in a London street. But my laughter stopped dead and merged into a flood of weeping when I saw how my change of feeling affected him. He had left his place by the window and was kneeling on the floor at my feet, his hands stretched out towards me, and the first sign of a kind of glory about his head. Put your arms round me and kiss me for the love of God, he cried. Kiss me, oh kiss me, and I shall be freed. You have done so much already, now do this. I stuck there, hesitating, shaking, my determination on the verge of action, yet not quite able to compass it. But the terror had almost gone. Forget that I am a man and you are a woman, he continued in the most beseeching voice I've ever heard. Forget that I'm a ghost and come out boldly and press me to you with a great kiss and let your love flow into me. Forget yourself for just one minute and do a brave thing. Oh, love me, love me, love me, and I shall be free. The words, the deep force they somehow released in the center of my being, stirred me profoundly, and an emotion infinitely greater than fear surged up over me and carried me with it across the edge of action. Without hesitation, I took two steps forwards him, towards him, where he knelt and held out my arms, Pity and love were in my heart at that moment. Genuine pity, I swear, and genuine love. I forgot myself and my little tremblings in a great desire to help another soul. I love you, poor, aching, unhappy thing, I love you, I cried through hot tears, and I am not the least bit afraid in the world. The man uttered a curious sound like laughter, yet not laughter, and turned his face up to me. The light from the street below fell on it, but there was another light, too, shining all around that seemed to come from the eyes and skin. He rose to his feet and met me, and in that second I folded him to my breast and kissed him full on the lips again and again. All our pipes had gone out, and not even a skirt rustled in that dark studio as the storyteller paused a moment to steady her voice and put a hand softly up to her eyes before going on again. Now, what can I say and how can I describe to you, all you skeptical men sitting there with pipes in your mouths, the amazing sensation I experienced of holding an intangible, impalpable thing so closely to my heart that it touched my body with equal pressure all the way down and then melted away somewhere into my very being. For it was like seizing a rush of cool wind and feeling a touch of burning fire the moment it had struck its swift blow. A series of shocks ran all over and all through me, a moment of ecstasy, a flaming sweetness, and wonder thrilled down into me. My heart gave another great leap, and then I was alone. The room was empty. I turned on the gas and struck a match to prove it. All fear had left me, and something was singing round me in the air and in my heart, like the joy of a spring morning in youth. 
Not all the devils or shadows or hauntings in the world could have caused me a single tremor. I unlocked the door and went all over the dark house, even into the kitchen and cellar and up among the ghostly attics. But the house was empty. Something had left it. I lingered a short hour, analyzing, thinking, wondering. You can guess what and how, perhaps, but I won't detail, for I promised only essentials, remember? And then went out to sleep the remainder of the night in my own flat, locking the door behind me upon a house no longer haunted. But my uncle Sir Henry, the owner of the house, required an account of my adventure, and I, of course, was in duty bound to give him some kind of true story. Before I could begin, however, he held up his hand to stop me. First, he said, I wish to tell you a little deception I ventured to practice on you. So many people have been to that house and seen that ghost, I came to think the story acted on their imaginations, and I wished to make a better test. So I invented for their benefit another story, with the idea that if you did see anything, I could be sure it was not due to merely an excited imagination. Then what you told me about a woman having been murdered and all that, that was not the true story of the haunting? It was not. The true story is that a cousin of mine went mad in that house and killed himself in a fit of morbid terror following upon years of miserable hypochondriasis. It is his figure that investigators see. That explains, then, I gasped. Explains what? I thought of that poor struggling soul, longing all these years for escape and determined to keep my story for the present to myself. Explains, I mean, why I did not see the ghost of the murdered woman, I concluded. Precisely, said Sir Henry, and why, if you had seen anything, it would have had value inasmuch as it could not have been caused by the imagination working upon a story you already knew. Ooh, the end. <laughs> it's so good. Oh, I love it. It's so good. What a and great, sweet. what a great twist on the normal uh, spookiness. It's like the ghost just yeah. wants to, just like, please don't be scared just of me, which is right. what I usually feel. I feel like if you just talk to it and try to yeah. show it a little sympathy, the ghost, you know, can move on, or at the very least, not feel so lonely. It's got to be lonely to be a ghost and have everyone so terrified of you for just being. That's you know, yeah. it sucks. Right. But oh, that was so good. Such a good reading. It was too. good. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. You know, I thought I was going to stumble a lot more than I did. I was really proud of myself. You're great. <laughs> that's a lot to that was, read. That's a lot. Without... <laughs> and, and and the Victorian, you know, the 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 Eldernon style is. Uh, yes. You know, there's going to be some trip ups because yes. of those wonderful <laughs> inverted clauses and all sorts of crazy just, things. Yeah, you know. One of the things, um, I did read this ahead of time to the girls, and uh, they were transfixed. Uh, I love Both it. of them, a seven-year-old uh, and a ten-year-old, were just leaning in, listening, trying to figure out, like, you know, listen to the whole story and everything. And so it, it, I think it's a good example of some of these older stories that really translate. Like, they they can, you can hear them in a modern mm-hmm. voice and be like, yeah, yeah that's, that still works. Oh, absolutely. I think I think yeah. we're still very much transported. And there's something about a good ghost story. I mean, the the Victorians held su- like they really cornered the market mm-hmm. <laughs> on the ghost story that it's it's kind of impossible not to avail yourself of at least some of the trappings of a traditional storytelling style um to get at the ghost. You know, I mean, it's just it's just it's just good form. It's tradition. Tradition. Well, and I think too, especially Victorian times, Victorian England specifically, mm. there were a lot of ways to die in the house that were new and fresh <laughs> and different. So you had a lot of yeah. people dying in ways 
that, you know, people died in their homes. That mm-hmm. was pretty normal. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't in these particular ways that sometimes were pretty violent deaths. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were new. And and so I think that kind of spurred the idea that they were yeah. still there in that house and, you know, helped with the. Well, the because the because the very it. because the very fact of some of these deaths were traumatic to everyone, like just the very possibility yeah. of someone being able to die, like in a car accident, for example, when cars were new or or mm-hmm. in various industrialized ways when industrialization, you know, got a foothold. Yeah. A fall like, down the stairs uh, was a much more common yeah. way of dying in Victorian yeah. England. And you know what? Perhaps we should do an episode where we get into all of the ways I, you could die. I, you know, I think a little a little alphabet of deaths, if you like. That um, would be fun. Nice. Be well, fun. I let's take a quick break so I can refill my okay. wine, and then uh, I will read my Algernon selection. I'm excited to hear it. Ah. Okay. Happy holidays. Hopefully happy. <laughs> it's our holiday Hope, commercial. Hopeful holidays. <laughs> hopeful happy holidays. <laughs> this is our commercial for Patreon. Yay! Uh, so sign up, join. Be a Do patron. It. Join Do the it. Discord. It's a lot of fun. They have D&D games. They're so fun. Oh, Very it's supportive. Such great, it's such a great community. No reason not to it's do it. It's so much fun to interact with our community. That's true. And also, it it's helpful for us, too, to keep uh, from other commercials getting in besides this one this so is please join uh, it's, it is it is a lot of fun and we do so appreciate all of the support that we have from patrons out there um, we appreciate anything that anything you could do uh, mm-hmm. patreon.com ghoul intentions mm-hmm. and uh, we really really appreciate it our discord chats will be for all discord uh, members that will be on the 12th of December yes. at 4 p.m. Central Standard Time yeah. Yes, yes. 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 Indeed. And then we will also have one for our Phantasm tier, uh, the nice. Discord Phantasm tier, at 4 p.m. Central Standard Time, same t- same time, on the 26th. Yes. So join us. We love. Join us. We love hearing from you. We love getting to talk with you in a more interactive way. We really, mm-hmm. really look forward. We just finished up a chat uh, yesterday. Uh, yeah, with our patrons really and we all agree that it's just like I don't know it's just so much fun it, it's it's my it's one of my favorite things about doing this podcast is getting to interact yeah. with the community and hearing personal stories and just getting to chat with people especially and now questions that we don't think about exactly like what was the one the book like what yeah what, uh, what authors to, would influence what, us yeah what or what like what literary style would you would you adopt if you were writing a ghost story was, yes. was uh, Sarah's such question such a great question and it was yeah, so, we, so good we have so I'm, much fun with it so yeah. uh, and you will too if you are a patron if mm-hmm. you aren't sure um find a patron and ask them and they'll tell you it's it's yeah. a lot of fun and we yeah. certainly certainly appreciate the support and the group um, and, and the community is very supportive of each other as well so once you're in your family that's right mm-hmm. that's right so yay, yay! Patron, and happy holidays hopeful holidays we hope to see you on happy patreon hopeful holidays <laughs> wow stay spooky and we're back. We're back, we're back for round two of beverages. Christmas Ghosties. Our beverages, yes. What are you drinking? I'm drinking a a nice Sauvignon Blanc. Oh, I'm drinking a uh, Cabernet Sauvignon or Cab Sauvignon. Cab Sauvignon. You're drinking a red Sav and I'm drinking a, a white Sav. Uh-huh. Yeah, the red uh, and the white. I go through periods where reds just give me headaches. From them, them tannins get into my You know, space. if you can get some nice organic red wines, they don't do that. Oh, maybe that's what I should do. Yeah, I, I found that out myself uh, recently. Some, uh, yeah, there was a, 
uh, a well-known agent here in LA who we were listening to a podcast interview she'd given and uh, she was she's really into red wine but had to stop drinking it because of uh, headaches and then she found yeah. organic wine organic red wine oh. I'm like ah so I get this I don't know why that is but it seems so we do organic Maybe. red wine now and I'm like I don't get headaches anymore no more headaches All great right. which means I can drink without screwing future me at least yeah that's the main thing yeah. and i am drinking on a rather empty stomach so this should be fun oh oh well i think this is a classic spooky story it's there's nothing yeah. uplifting about it <laughs> great great uh it's also one of my it's very clever and it's just got all Real the elements quickly. of a good story mm, yes sorry before we move forward i just want to thank ash yes for sending in yes. their opening story Ash, thank you. So I good. I forgot to talk about it. <laughs> um, I, I knew we'd get to, we'd, right I knew we'd get to it. We'd, we'd get, get to it. We'd never forget it. Thank Ash. you. Thank you, Ash. Ash is one of our um, not only Phantasm members, but also one of our admins mm, mm, for mm, uh, mm. our Discord, which we have a chat the day after Christmas. Mm-hmm. So we will be talking to you guys then. But um, Ash, thank you. What a great story. You're the and, best. And yeah, it just, it. I think it, it was a really... I don't know. I, we just felt like it needed to be heard. Yeah. And it was yeah. really, really nicely done and a really lovely story. Yeah. So thank you for sharing thank that with you. us. And, and letting me read it. Yeah. You did such a good yeah. job. Thank, 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 thank you. Thank you. All right. Yeah. And now on to something not nearly as uplifting. <laughs> Algernon yeah. Blackwood's The Kit Bag. Now, for those of you who don't know, a kit bag is kind of an old term for uh, what we think of as a duffel bag. It's kind of canvas bag. It was just kind of an easy pack. If you were packing for like a big trip and didn't want to have like fuss with a bunch of, you know, matched luggage, most gentlemen just traveled with a, you know, like, a, you know, the equivalent of an army bag or a duffel bag, which it was called a kit bag. So it's important to the story because, I mean, after all, it is the title. So <laughs> let me. <laughs> <laughs> Although it makes me think of it's Kit Kat, and now I want a Kit Kat. God damn it, a Kit Kat mm. bag. S- story wouldn't be nearly as scary if it were you about know what? Kit Kats. Kit Kat's good, but it's not. It's not even close to the top. Uh, it's one of my favorites. I, there's something really? about wafer and chocolate that's just yeah, match made heavy for me. Twix are great. Twix are great. I'm not the biggest fan of caramel, so I ha- I tolerate oh. the caramel. I like the flavor, but not the texture of caramel. So, yeah, that's just a weird thing. I mean, I'll still eat it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not. No, I I tolerate. (laughs) I tolerate caramel. You tolerate it. Um, And I do. I think caramel has a lot to offer. Uh, Just not to me. Uh, All right. Yeah. So, (laughs) The Kit Bag by Algernon Blackwood, which incidentally was first published in Pall Mall Magazine, December 1908. Mine was 1907. Look at that. Look at that. Yeah, you have more details about yours. I just was like, this, I like this. And... I mean, those are all okay. those are all the details. Okay. <clears throat> when the words not guilty sounded through the crowded courtroom that dark December afternoon, Arthur Wilbraham, the great criminal KC and leader for the triumphant defense, was represented by his junior. But Johnson, his private secretary, carried the verdict across to his chambers like lightning. It's what we expected, I think, said the barrister, without emotion. And personally, I'm glad the case is over. There was no particular sign of pleasure that his defense of John Turk, the murderer, on a plea of insanity had been successful, for no doubt he felt, as everybody who had watched the case felt, that no man had ever deserved better the gallows. I'm glad too, said Johnson. He sat in the court for ten days, watching the face of the man who had carried out with callous uh, detail one of the most brutal and cold-blooded murders of recent years. 
The council glanced up at his secretary. They were more than employer and employed. For family and other reasons, they were friends. Ah, I remember, yes, he said with a kind smile. And you want to get away for Christmas. You're going to skate and ski in the Alps, aren't you? Ah, if I was your age, I'd come with you. Johnson laughed shortly. He was a young man of 26, with a delicate face like a girl's. I can catch the morning boat now, he said. And that's not the reason I'm glad the trial is over, though. I'm glad it's over because I've seen the last of that man's dreadful face. It positively haunted me. That white skin with the black hair brushed low over the forehead is a thing I shall never forget. And the description of the way the dismembered body was crammed and packed with lime into that don't dwell on it, my dear fellow, interrupted the other, looking at him curiously out of his keen eyes. Don't think about it. Such pictures have a trick of coming back when one least wants them. He paused a moment. Now go, he added presently, and enjoy your holiday. I shall want all your energy for my parliamentary work when you get back, and don't break your neck skiing. Johnson shook hands and took his leave. At the door, he turned suddenly. I knew there was something I wanted to ask you, he said. Would you mind lending me one of your kit bags? It's too late to get one tonight, and I leave in the morning before the shops are open. Of course, I'll send Henry over with it to your rooms. You shall have it the moment I get home. I promise to take great care of it, said Johnson gratefully, delighted to think that within thirty hours he would be nearing the brilliant sunshine of the high Alps in winter. The thought of that criminal court was like an evil dream in his mind. He dined at his club and went on to Bloomsbury, where he occupied the top floor in one of those old gaunt houses in which the rooms are large and lofty. The floor below his own was vacant and unfurnished and below that were other lodgers whom he did not know. It was a cheerless, uh, it was cheerless, and he looked forward heartily to a change. The night was even more cheerless. It was miserable, and few people were about. A cold, sleety rain was driving down the streets before the keenest east wind he had ever felt. It howled dismally along the big, gloomy houses of the great squares, and when he reached his rooms he heard it whistling and shouting over the world of black roofs beyond his windows. In the hall he met his landlady, shading a candle from the draughts with her thin hand. This come by from a man with uh, Mr. Wilbrim, sir. She pointed to what was evidently the kit bag, and Johnson thanked her and took it upstairs with him. I shall be going abroad in the morning for ten days, Mrs. Monks, he said. I'll leave an address for letters. And I hope you have a Merry Christmas, sir, she said in a raucous, wheezy voice that suggested spirits. And better weather than this. I hope so, too replied her lodger, shuddering a little as the wind went roaring down the street outside. When he got upstairs, he heard the sleet volleying against the window panes. He put his kettle on to make a cup of hot coffee and then set about putting a few things in order for his absence. And now I must pack, such as my packing is, he laughed to himself and set to work at once. He liked the packing, for it brought the snowy mountains so vividly before him and made him forget the unpleasant scenes of the past ten days. Besides, it was not elaborate in nature. His friend had lent him the very thing, a stout canvas kit bag, sack-shaped with holes round the neck for the brass bar and padlock. It was a bit shapeless, true, and not much to look at, but its capacity was unlimited, and there was no need to pack carefully. He shoved in his waterproof coat, his fur cap and gloves, his skates and climbing boots, his sweaters, snow boots, and gear caps. And then, on top of these, he piled his woolen shirts and underwear. His thick socks, putties, and knickerbockers. The dress suit came next, in case the hotel people dressed for dinner. And then, thinking of the best way to pack his white shirts, he paused a moment to reflect. That's the worst of these kit bags, he mused vaguely, standing in the center of the sitting room where he had come to fetch some string. 
It was after ten o'clock. A furious gust of wind rattled the windows as though to hurry him up, and he thought with pity of the poor Londoners whose Christmas would be spent in such a climate, whilst he was skimming over snowy slopes in bright sunshine and dancing in the evening with rosy-cheeked girls. Ah, that reminded him. He must put in his dancing pumps and evening socks. He crossed over from his sitting room to the cupboard on the landing, where he kept his linen. As he did so, he heard someone softly coming up the stairs. He stood still a moment on the landing to listen. It was Mrs. Monk's step, he thought. She must be coming up with the late, with the late post. But then the steps ceased suddenly, and he heard no more. They were at least two flights down, and he came to the conclusion that they were too heavy to be those of his bilious landlady. No doubt they belonged to a late lodger who had mistaken his floor. He went into his bedroom and packed his pumps and dress shirts as best he could. The kit bag by this time was two-thirds full and stood upright on its own, like a sack of flour. For the first time, he noticed that it was, it was old and dirty, the canvas faded and worn, and that it had obviously been subjected to rather rough treatment. It was not a very nice bag to have sent him, certainly not a new one or one his chief valued. He gave the matter a passing thought and went on with his packing. Once or twice, however, he caught himself wondering who it could have been wandering down below. For Mrs. Monks had not come up with letters, and the floor below his was empty and unfurnished. From time to time, moreover, he was almost certain he heard a soft tread of someone padding about over the bare boards cautiously, stealthily, as silently as possible, and, further, that the sounds had been lately coming distinctly nearer. For the first time in his life, he began to feel a little creepy. Then, as though to emphasize this feeling, an odd thing happened. As he left the bedroom, having just packed his recalcitrant white shirts, he noticed that the top of the kit bag lopped over towards him with an extraordinary resemblance to a human face. The canvas fell into a fold like a nose and the forehead, and the brass rings for the padlock just filled the position of the eyes. A shadow, or was it a travel stain, for he could not tell exactly, looked like hair. It gave him rather a turn, for it was so absurdly, so outrageously, like the face of John Turk, the murderer. He laughed and went into the front room where the light was stronger. That horrid case has got on my mind, he thought. I shall be glad of a change of scene and air. In the sitting room, however, he was not pleased to hear again that stealthy tread upon the stairs and to realize that it was much closer than before, as well as unmistakably real. And this time he got up and went out to see who it could be creeping about on the upper staircase at so late an hour. But the sound ceased. There was no one visible on the stairs. He went to the floor below, not without trepidation, and turned on the electric light to make sure that no one was hiding in the empty rooms of the unoccupied suite. There was not a stick of furniture large enough to hide a dog. Then he called over the, bar then he called over the banisters to Mrs. Monk, but there was no answer and his voice echoed down into the dark vault of the house and was lost in the roar of the gale that howled outside. Everyone was in bed and asleep, everyone except himself and the owner of this soft, stealthy tread. My absurd imagination, I suppose, he thought. Must have been the wind after all, although it seemed so very real and close, I thought. He went back to his packing. It was by this time getting on towards midnight. He drank his coffee up and lit another pipe, the last one before turning in. It is difficult to say exactly at what point fear begins, when the causes of that fear are not plainly before the eyes. 
Impressions gather on the surface of the mind, film by film, and ice, as ice gathers upon the surface of still water, but often so lightly that they claim no definite recognition from the consciousness. Then a point is reached where the accumulated impressions become a definite emotion, and the mind realizes that something has happened. With something of a start, Johnson suddenly recognized that he felt nervous, oddly nervous. Also that for some time past the causes of this feeling, let me say that again, also that for some time past the causes of this feeling had been gathering slowly in his mind, that he had only just reached the point where he was forced to acknowledge them. It was a singular and curious malaise that had overcome him, and he hardly knew what to make of it. He felt as though he were doing something that was strongly objected to by another person, another person, moreover, who had some right to object. It was a most disturbing and disagreeable feeling, not unlike the persistent promptings of conscience, almost, in fact, as if he were doing something he knew to be wrong. Yet, though he searched vigorously and honestly in his mind, he could nowhere lay his finger upon the secret of this growing uneasiness, and it perplexed him. More, it distressed and frightened him. Pure nerves, I suppose, he said aloud with a forced laugh. Mountain air will cure all that. Ah, he added, still speaking to himself, and that reminds me, my snow glasses. He was standing by the door of the bedroom during this brief soliloquy, and as he passed quickly towards the sitting room to fetch them from the cupboard, he saw, out of the corner of his eye, the indistinct outline of a figure standing on the stairs a few feet from the top. It was someone in a stooping position, with one hand on the banisters and the face peering up towards the landing. And at the same moment he heard a shuffling footstep. The person who had been creeping about below all this time had at last come up to his own floor. Who in the world could it be? And what in the name of heaven did he want? Johnson caught his breath sharply and stood stock still. Then after a few seconds' hesitation, he found his courage and turned to investigate. The stairs, he saw to his utter amazement, were empty. There was no one. He felt a series of cold shivers run over him, and something about the muscles of his legs gave a little and grew weak. For the space of several minutes, he peered steadily into the shadows that congregated about the top of the staircase where he had seen the figure, and then he walked fast, almost ran, in fact, into the light of the front room. But hardly had he passed inside the doorway when he heard someone come up the stairs behind him with a quick bound and go swiftly into his bedroom. It was a heavy, but at the same time a stealthy footstep, the tread of someone who did not wish to be seen. And it was at this precise moment that the nervousness he had hitherto experienced leaped the boundary line and entered the state of fear, almost of acute, unreasoning fear. Before it turned into terror, there was a further boundary to cross, and beyond that again lay the region of pure horror. Johnson's position was an unenviable un one. By Jove, that was someone on the stairs then, he muttered, his, fre his flesh crawling all over and whoever it was has now gone into my bedroom. His delicate pale face turned absolutely white, and for some minutes he hardly knew what to think or do. Then he realized intuitively that delay only set a premium upon fear, and he crossed the landing boldly and went straight into the other room where, a few seconds before, the steps had disappeared. Who's there? Is that you, Mrs. Monks? He called aloud as he went and heard the first half of his words echo down the empty stairs while the second half fell dead against the curtains in a room that apparently held no other human figure than his own. Who's there? He called again in a voice unnecessarily loud and that only just held firm. What do you want here? 
The curtain swayed very slightly, and as he saw it, his heart felt as if it almost missed a beat, yet he dashed forward and threw them aside with a rush. A window, streaming with rain, was all that met his gaze. He continued his search, but in vain. The cupboards held nothing but rows of clothes hanging motionless, and under the bed there was no sign of anyone hiding. He stepped backwards into the middle of the room, and as he did so, something all but tripped him up. Turning with a sudden spring of alarm, he saw the kit bag. Odd, he thought. That's not why I left it. A few moments before, it had surely been on his right, between the bed and the bath. He did not remember having moved it. It was very curious. What in the world was the matter with everything? Were all his senses gone wrong? A terrific gust of wind tore at the windows, dashing the sleet against the glass with the force of a small gunshot, and then fled away, howling dismally over the waste of Bloomsbury roofs. A sudden vision of the channel next day rose in his mind and recalled him sharply to realities. There's no one here at any rate, that's quite clear, he exclaimed aloud. Yet at the time he uttered them, he knew perfectly well that his words were not true, and that he did not believe them himself. He felt exactly as though someone were hiding close about him, watching all his movements, trying to hinder his packing in some way. And two of my senses, he added, keeping up the pretense, have played me the most absurd tricks. The steps I heard and the figure I saw were both entirely imaginary. He went back to the front room, poked the fire into a blaze, and sat down before it to think. What impressed him more than anything else was the fact that the kit bag was no longer where he had left it. It had been dragged near to the door. What happened afterwards that night happened, of course, to a man already excited by fear and was perceived by a man that had not the full and proper control, therefore, of the senses. Outwardly, Johnson remained calm and the master of himself to the end, pretending to the very last that everything he witnessed had a natural explanation or was merely delusions of his tired nerves. But inwardly, in his very heart, he knew all along that someone had been hiding downstairs in the empty suite when he came in, that this person had watched his opportunity and then stealthily made his way up to the bedroom, and that all he saw and heard afterwards, from the moving of the kit bag to, well, to the other things the story has to tell, were caused directly by the presence of this invisible person. And it was here, just when he most desired to keep his mind and thoughts controlled, that the vivid pictures received day after day upon the mental plates exposed in the courtroom of the Old Bailey came strongly to light and developed themselves in the dark room of his inner vision. Unpleasant, haunting memories have a way of coming to life again just when the mind least desires them, in the silent watches of the night, on sleepless pillows, during the lonely hours kept by sick and dying beds. And so now, in the same way, Johnson saw nothing but the dreadful face of John Turk, the murderer, lowering at him from every corner of his mental field of vision. The white skin, the evil eyes, the fringe of black hair low over the forehead. All the pictures of those ten days in court crowded back into his mind, unbidden and very vivid. This is all rubbish and nerves, he exclaimed at length, springing with sudden energy from his chair. I shall finish my packing and go to bed. I'm overwrought, overtired. No doubt at this rate I shall hear steps and things all night. But his face was deadly white all the same. He snatched up his field glasses and walked across to the bedroom, humming a music hall song as he went, a trifle too loud to be natural. And the instant he crossed the threshold and stood within the room, something turned cold by his heart, and he felt that every hair on his head stood up. The kit bag lay close in front of him, several feet nearer to the door than where he had left it. And just over its crumpled top, he saw a head and face 
slowly sinking down out of sight, as though someone were crouching behind it to hide. And at the same moment, a sound like a long, drawn sigh was distinctly audible in the still air about him between the gusts of the storm outside. Johnson had more courage and willpower than the girlish indecision of his face indicated, but at first such a wave of terror came over him that for some seconds he could do nothing but stand and stare. A violent trembling ran down his back and legs, and he was conscious of a foolish, almost a hysterical impulse to scream aloud. That sigh seemed in his very ear, and the air still quivered with it. It was unmistakably a human sigh. Who's there? That's my addition. <laughs> Who's there? He said at length, finding his voice. But though he meant to speak with loud decision, the tones came out instead in a faint whisper, for he had partly lost the control of his tongue and lips. He stepped forward so that he could see all around and over the kit bag. Of course there was nothing there, nothing but the faded carpet and the bulging canvas sides. He put out his hands and threw open the mouth of the sack where it had fallen over, being only three parts full, and then he saw for the first time that round the inside, some six inches from the top, there ran a broad smear of dull crimson. It was an old and faded bloodstain. He uttered a scream and drew his hands back as if they had been burnt. At the same moment, the kit bag gave a faint but unmistakable lurch towards the door. Johnson collapsed backwards, searching with his hands for the support of something solid, and the door, being further behind him than he realized, received his weight just in time to prevent his falling, and shut to with a resounding bang. At the same moment, the swinging of his left arm accidentally touched the electric switch, and the light in the room went out. It was an awkward and disagreeable predicament, and if Johnson had not been possessed of real pluck, he might have done all manner of foolish things. As it was, however, he pulled himself together and groped furiously for the little brass knob to turn the light back on. But the rapid closing of the door had set the coats hanging on it a-swinging, and his fingers became entangled in a confusion of sleeves and pockets, so that it was some moments before he found the switch. And in those few moments of bewilderment and terror, two things happened that sent him beyond recall over the boundary into the region of genuine horror. He distinctly heard the kit bag shuffling heavily across the floor in jerks, and close in front of his face sounded once again the sigh of a human being. In his anguished efforts to find the brass button on the wall, he nearly scraped the nails from his fingers, but even then, in those frenzied moments of alarm, so swift and alert are the impressions of a mind keyed up by a vivid emotion, he had time to realize that he dreaded the return of the light, that it might be better for him to stay hidden in the merciful screen of darkness, it was but the impulse of a moment, however, and before he had time to act upon it, he had yielded automatically to the original desire, and the room was flooded again with light. But the second instinct had been right. It would have been better for him to stay sheltered in the kind darkness. For there, close before him, bending over the half-packed kit bag, clear as life in the merciless glare of the electric light, stood the figure of John Turk the murderer. Not three feet from him the man stood, the fringe of black hair marked plainly against the pallor of the forehead. The whole horrible presentiment of the scoundrel, as vivid as he had seen him day after day in the old bailey, when he stood there in the dark, cynical and callous, under the very shadow of the gallows. In a flash, Johnson realized what it all meant. The dirty and 
Much-used bag, the smear of crimson within the top, the dreadful stretched condition of the bulging sides, he remembered how the victim's body had been stuffed into a canvas bag for burial, the ghastly, dismembered fragments forced with lime into this very bag, and the bag itself produced as evidence. It all came back to him as clear as day. Very softly and stealthily, his hand groped behind him for the handle of the door, but before he could actually turn it, the very thing that he most of all dreaded came about, and John Turk lifted his devil's face and looked at him. At the same moment, that heavy sigh passed through the air of the room, formulated somehow into words. It's my bag, and I want it. Johnson just remembered clawing the door open and then falling in a heap upon the floor of the landing as he tried frantically to make his way into the front room. He remained unconscious for a long time, and it was still dark when he opened his eyes and realized that he was lying stiff and bruised on the cold boards. Then the memory of what he had seen rushed back into his mind, and he promptly fainted again. When he woke the second time, he, the wintry dawn was just beginning to peep in at the windows, painting the stairs uh, a cheerless, dismal gray, and he managed to crawl into the front room and cover himself with an overcoat and an armchair, where at length he fell asleep. A great clamor woke him. He recognized Mrs. Monk's voice, loud and voluble. What, you ain't to bed yet, sir? Are you ill? Has anything happened? And there, was an, there was an urgent gentleman to see you, though it ain't seven o'clock, and who is it? He stammered. I'm all right, thanks. You fell asleep in my chair, I suppose. Someone from Mr. Wilbrum's, and he says he ought to see you quick before you go abroad, and I told him, show him up, please, at once, said Johnson, whose head was whirling and his mind was full of dreadful visions. Mr. Wilbraham's man came in with many apologies and explained briefly and quickly that an absurd mistake had been made and that the wrong kit bag had been sent over the night before. Henry somehow got hold of the one that came over from the courtroom, and Mr. Wilbraham only discovered it when he saw his own lying in his room and asked why it had not been gone to you, the man said. Oh, said Johnson stupidly. And he must have brought it you the and he must have brought you the one from the murder case instead, sir, I'm afraid, the man continued, without the ghost of an expression on his face. The one John Turk packed the dead both in. Mr. Wilbraham's awful upset about it, sir, and he told me to come over first thing this morning with the right one as you were leaving by the boat. He pointed to a clean looking kit bag on the floor which he had just brought. And I was to bring the other one back, sir, he added casually. For some minutes Johnson could not find his voice. At last, he pointed in the direction of his bedroom. Perhaps you would kindly unpack it for me. Just empty the things onto the floor. The man disappeared into the other room and was gone for five minutes. Johnson heard the shifting to and fro of the bag and the rattle of the skates and boots being unpacked. Thank you, sir, the man said, returning with the bag folded over his arm. And can I do anything more to help you, sir? What is it? asked Johnson, seeing that he still had something he wished to say. The man shuffled and looked mysterious. Beg pardon, sir, but knowing your interest in the Turk case, I thought you'd maybe like to know what's happened. Yes? John Turk killed himself last night with poison immediately upon getting his release. And he left a note for Mr. Wilbraham saying he'd be much obliged if they could have him put away, same as the woman he'd murdered in the old kit bag. <coughs> what time did he do it? asked Johnson. Ten o'clock last night, sir, the warder says. The end. <laughs> yes! Ah! Uh, <laughs> oh, yes! Oh, it's so good! So good! Ah! Uh, that's good. Classic. I love that both of us really took a modern reading, so we didn't, you know, do it in a in a more Victorian style, which I think is. 
the way yeah, to read these. But it's fun. I put the uh, Victorian in the voices itself. You know, when you they were did, talking. You did. Right yes, I didn't do that because mm. I didn't want to fuck it up. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. Oh, so yeah, I did a great man. story. It takes place right around Christmas too. It's just perfect. I love it. I love it. So good. So good. Yeah. Also. That John Turk guy, what an emo motherfucker, right? Like they, as they describe him, like emo. This man killed people and wrote poems about it. Like there's no and, way. And you gotta, you gotta love, you gotta, you just gotta kind of transport yourself back to Victorian times and be like, it's so crazy that someone's like whether or not their hair falls over their forehead is considered a distinguishing characteristic because it was so mm-hmm. rare. It's like his hair is what they call must up. So be careful. He's a dangerous character, that one. He's got terrifying. He's got bangs. Uh, (laughs) He's got bangs. It's terrible. Uh, With the one that I read when it was like he'd gone mad, it was took everything for me not to be like, throw champagne glass into the fire. Mad, mad, I tell you. Mad, mad. I missed a golden opportunity to do that for you. I'm so sorry. Next time, next time. No, by then, by the time you get to the end, it's like, yeah. I know. <laughs> it's just reacting. That was really lovely read as well. Thank you, thank you. I didn't, I didn't screw up lovely. quite as much as I expected to. So I just, you know, right? Yeah, I... it's a lot. I challenge <laughs> anyone to read that much. Yes, well, I, I hope um, I did the old narrator, the old radio narrator, Algernon. That's right. Justice. Oh, so good. Oh man. Mm, mm, mm. Happy. Christmas. Happy Christmas, everyone, or whatever holiday you celebrate or don't celebrate around this time. Yeah. I hope the next few weeks for you are are happy. Are happy. That's right. Yeah. Um, And a little spooky. And a little spooky. Man, that was good. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, send us your ghost stories. We are still, you know, we've got our Ghosticles episode coming up. And just because Christmas is, you know, will be gone by the time our next episode comes out doesn't mean we can't, like, focus on some Christmassy ghost stories that are more current. That's right. Hint, right. Wink, wink, nudge, Send nudge. Send them to us. Yes. Yeah, it's, you know, in the same way that it can be Halloween all year, it can be Jesus Halloween all year. <laughs> Why not? Why not? Away yeah. in a magical. haunted manger. It's magical. Yeah. Man, good stories. Thank good you. Good stories. Yeah, thank oh, you for I yours. It. I loved yours. Uh, so excellent. Yeah, And for those of you, please, so if you love classic ghost story, you've got so much to choose from with Algernon Blackwood, but That's I true. strongly recommend The Willows um, and uh, The Windigo are two like real strong. The right. Willows is yeah. more of a novella. It's a very long short story, but worth every word. Yeah, and the reason we can read them is because they're public domain, so <laughs> they're free online. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just have to... Yeah. So... Yeah, um... So, yes, uh, 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 thank you, guys. We hope you have a wonderful holiday, uh, if holidays that you've been having, holidays that you will have. Whatever we can say that will make you feel included, we are saying that now. Yes, because you are included. Okay. We love you. You're family. Because you are. We love you. We love you so much. Um, uh, uh, we will have our patron Patreon Discord chat on Saturday. So go to patreon.com. You've heard the commercial, so you know where to go. Yep. Um, if you want to join in on that chat. And um, uh, we just, you know, are very happy and feel very blessed to be able to do this for everyone. So thank you guys. Thank you. And stay safe. Stay safe. And remember, <sighs> it's, it's okay, okay to, to sleep, sleep with, with the, the lights, lights on. on. Just be careful what bag you're packing. Oh, so true.